0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the 8-Bit Test Pit, Main Campaign, Episode 4. Today's panel consists of Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone. Today we're discussing what the future of archaeological publication looks like in light of archaeogaming becoming a field. How is the best way to present an argument when your argument is a video game? How do we keep track of these conversations across the wide world of the internet? What are the new best practices that we'd like to see put into play? And what could the brave new world of publishing look like if we opened it up a little bit? Get ready to roll initiative. Everyone and welcome to the 8-Bit Test Pit main campaign. I am your GM, Sarah, and I am joined today by Megan Dennis. Andrew Reinhardt and Tara Copplestone. How's it going guys and ladies? Hello. Good. Hello. Just uh, just for our listeners' information, Megan is slowly dying of the Black Plague that she got at some point overseas. Just after- So if she fades in and out, that's just letting you guys know ahead of time. But you can't catch it through the internet, so it's okay. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about different ways or new directions for the publication and the communication of archaeological data, especially archaeogaming data outside of a, a paper or a 2D format. So Andrew, you wanna start us off with that?
1: Sure. In my in my day job I am not an archaeogamer, but an archaeological publisher. I've I published for four years for the American School of Classical Studies at Athens and then i have been the publisher of the American Numismatic Society for two years and We're publishing archaeology um, of the ancient world um, in monographs and in journals and at the NS also in a magazine. And all of that is two-dimensional. And as any archaeologist will tell you, archaeology is not a two-dimensional science. Um, It is in 3D. It is also in 4D because you have the element of time that you're dealing with. And so when writing about archaeology in a monograph you you kind of capture the moment and you do some some synthetic analysis and that's really it uh and i think that undercuts a lot of what uh, archaeologists need to communicate uh to the readership whoever that might be the public or to their peers um and especially when you're talking about archaeogaming i mean you're dealing with these kinetic this kinetic media you know so you've got games that are happening in real time they have motion they have sound uh and visuals most of them uh, so how do you actively Publish uh, on the archaeology of video games um, or of any kind of moving media um, that is outside the scope of the monograph, and that's something I've been trying to wrap my head around for a while. I'm not quite sure what the answer is.
2: Tara, right? And and to kind of jump on on the end of that, like Andrew hit on a really important point, which is that the like the monograph or like the kind of traditional ways that we publish structure information in like a very particular way. And when you move to something like games or even to like cinema or photography or to 3D modeling, these all also have like these very different ways. And, and with games, one of the things that is fascinating is that they have to be played. They can't just like they don't emerge into their form until they're interacted with. They're, they're like an active media form. So it's like there are certain things in games like you can you can make an argument in a very certain way and engage the player through like uh, co-participation in that argument that you simply cannot do in other forms. Like you you can't make that argument in the same way in a paper. So it also offers these really interesting ways to make different types of arguments about different types of data. Um, But part of the problem is that, or part of the longstanding issue is that our academic institutions has been embedded into the textual media, specifically that of like the monograph or the journal article. And so we think of that as being the way which data and science uh, evolves and exists and how we should write these arguments. Uh, So how can we how can we move beyond that? Or is it important to move beyond that is, I guess, the more pressing question.
3: And I think it's interesting when we when we look at it this way, that we consider that this view of how science and data are conveyed is it's old, but it's still relatively modern. Um, there there was a time when passing on information was a back and forth process when the idea was you actually stood up and debated what you were talking about, debated your ideas, debated your theories. And I think that sort of oratorial style is much closer in terms of experiential data sharing um, and experiential science. Uh, it's much closer to games than the current model of of academic um, explanation. If that makes sense.
2: Right. Yeah. Like it's it's in the moment, and it's it's to do with that that interaction between things, rather than it just being like here is a, like an objective paper thing that you just consume, and you like impart that knowledge to the person. The other people are an active part of it.
1: Yeah right and that's i mean that's part of the end goal um, of doing that kind of traditional publication and the other is to satisfy some kind of requirement whether it's whether it's uh, satisfying you know something for your your masters or your phd or something for your tenure committee where the requirements are that you must publish a monograph or that you must publish x number of articles and it seems to ignore other other routes of publishing this kind of material that's new you know and you've got the tenure committees trying to catch up or the universities trying to catch up and so you know uh, Tara, Megan, and I are all working on different kinds of publications, and mine have, have been strictly traditional. I, I wish they weren't, but that's the kind of media that I'm tied to with with the publishers I'm working with. And I, I don't know how Megan or, or or Tara, your work, you know, will will evolve and how that will be published, you know, when you're ready to do so.
2: Mm. Well, I've recently had um, the the circumstance of of trying to actually publish my my PhD thesis as as a video game because. As we mentioned earlier, a lot of the arguments I want to make are participatory. Like I can't easily make them in a text format. I'd have to describe them, which kind of defeats the purpose. Um, but basically what it came back is, is that the the Academy is really interested in this. Like um, I presented a paper at the British Library and they were really on board with this. Like they get that there's a different way to make an argument. But the whole structure of how they store and take thesis and how they kind of um, – the kind of technical structure which surrounds it – has like a very fixed format. And basically it means that you have to present a PDF and you have to present a bound monograph to them at the end of it. And there's no good reason for this other than that's what we've always done and that's what our system is set up for. So you kind of have this interesting part, which I think Andrew can speak a lot more to, which is that the the sort of superstructure of the publishing industry has revolved around this very particular media form. And so that's just kind of how it is uh, for no reason other than the infrastructures there.
3: But something something that is interesting now that um, that we can talk about three of us being uh, with York is that we see, at least for our program specifically, you are expected at the end to present the monograph and it goes in the library and it does this and it does that. And it's a bound text. But along the way, the requirements that you have to meet except for that are that you have to be doing things like you have a we have a points-based system that we have to meet as students that say that we have to do a certain number of conferences, or we have to present a certain number of discussions or create an event. Um, And these are participatory things to show off what we're doing. But then in the end, even though you've done all of these things that require doing for other people to be part of, you still have to do the book.
0: I think it's interesting Listening to you guys talk about the different types of media that are coming out, because what immediately comes to my mind are things like the podcast, um, like a blog, and things very similar to a hangout situation, like a Google Hangout, where it is a video conference to an upwards of ten people, where even more people could observe but can't directly interact. Um, I see these as new ways of basically interacting and getting information out there and i could see how academically those types of things could be argued for and probably absorbed a whole lot quicker than something like tara's describing where she wants to basically make a th- make a game out of her thesis which i think is fascinating and i but i also think that that probably would have a little bit more pushback academically like megan was saying it's or tara or megan was saying um the only reason it's this way is because this is how it's always been so what kind of what kind of active ways do you think there are to start breaking down those walls and start moving things forward because why couldn't you instead of spending a thousand dollars a thousand or more dollars to go to a conference somewhere why couldn't you just do a google hangout where you could easily present the same kind of information in almost the same format to an even larger audience than you would be able to reach at a normal conference. And why wouldn't that count kind of a situation?
2: Mm, It's interesting you should say that because myself, Andrew, and and Sean Graham uh, about a year ago now held the Archeogaming Unconference, which is like the the brainchild of Sean. And he was basically Mm. wanting to explore like um, how we could uh, create a conference where it was participatory rather than just like one person delivering a paper. And this was done over uh, Google Hangouts. And so you'd have like a leader of a discussion who would present a point and then everyone would contribute and, and talk along the way. And I think that was hugely successful. But when you kind of talk about it with a lot of people, you still run into that boundary of it being like it's new and unproven and therefore it's not as valuable. And I think this is a little bit tying into the point that you made as well, where it's like. Things like podcasts, things like video have been around for quite a lot longer than video games at this point. So we're kind of like they're coming of age, they're maturing and we're accepting that they're not just entertainment forms, they're also serious modes of expression. They've had their kind of um, masterpieces done in them and we get it. Whereas video games are only just, I think in, in my opinion, starting to mature at this point into an expressive medium rather than just you know that that entertainment form that we we know and consume. Uh, so I think there's some, some deeper seated issues about how we think about and engage with media, yeah. uh, rather than necessarily it being a standalone thing that just exists.
1: Yeah, um, a, a couple of things, um, you know, with with dealing with with conferences and attendance, you know, via via Skype or via in person. You know, I've I've been going to academic conferences since the early 1990s, and I found them to be the most valuable. You know, basically in in networking face to face, not giving the paper and and not listening to other papers and i'll probably get into trouble for saying that but but uh, it's it's you know seeing friends and old roommates and and meeting people you know in the bar or in the lobby or 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 in a special interest group and and having a really good deep long conversation um about whatever it is that's on our minds and then coming to some kind of conclusion or coming away with some great ideas um you know, as as far as as uh, presenting at conferences, you know, if, if you submit your abstract to a conference, um, and you know, those abstracts get peer read and you get accepted, um, you know, I think it's totally acceptable for you to present via Skype, via uh, coming in person, um, and that is a dialogue that needs to be had between the speaker and the organizer to make sure that that's kosher with the group. I know a lot of the big annual conferences, that's how they make their money is by registration fees and people coming and it's it, it's it's all about cash in my mind as opposed to delivering some good content and speaking of good content you know we have to also think about the peer review process um, as it is right now I think it's broken and it's especially so when you're dealing with new media you know how, how are we going to peer review um, a, a thesis that is a game I'd I'd love to know and I'd be a part of that, you know, <laughs> because it sounds really interesting to me. But but uh, you know, who has the the digital literacy, you know, to start to to serve as a peer when peer reviewing things for publication in these new formats? So Andrew, you know, that, can that's you
0: can you kind of describe the peer review process as it stands today for any of our listeners who might not be in the field? I mean, I assume they're out there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, for for the two places where I've I've directed publications, we have a double-blind peer review. That is to say that an article comes in. It is anonymized by us in-house. We identify uh, readers who are professionals in the field in which the article has been written. And they remain anonymous to the author as well. So we send this blind article out to two reviewers on the outside. And we also send it to a committee reviewer on the inside, also anonymous. And then feedback comes back in between four and six months to say, okay, this is good. This is bad. This needs revision. This needs rejection. And at that point, the author and the reviewers are consulted to see if they want to waive their anonymity so that there can be a dialogue between the author and the reviewer. I know that that part um, is sometimes rare to see, but it's still helpful, um, and and then you know things proceed. So it's basically vetting the content by people who've kind of been there and done that and are experts in the field. Um, that's good in some ways because you're dealing with, with perhaps senior scholars or those who have a lot of experience, And it's bad because you're kind of ignoring new blood who might have new things to say or new ways of thinking that might be – you know, with the old school folks, they might be poisoning the well. With the new school folks, they might not have the experience yet. At the same time, this article needs to be read and reviewed by folks as opposed to just going out there, which is a little bit different than doing a podcast or doing a blog, which isn't really pure review. Right. Um, it could be, you know, if I write something on a blog, I want people to come in and yell at me, you know, so that I can make the argument better. You know, that's a kind of peer review, but it's not formal like what I was describing.
0: Right. I mean, we still get feedback and, and encourage feedback to things like our blogs and the podcast here. Uh, but like you're saying, it's not sought after exactly. Like, I, will, I don't send this podcast to other people. Maybe I should. But currently, I don't send this podcast to people and be like, hey, critique my podcast. And with the double blind, I mean, like you're saying, who would I even send this material to? So if you could change it, ideally, I mean, I, and I know this is a huge thing to do, but what would you, in the perfect world, what would you like to see going forward with presenting information outside of the traditional formats? How would you like to see the peer review process work with things like a blog, a podcast, a, a video game?
1: I, I personally I personally think, and, and I have a feeling that a lot of people will disagree, but I personally think that anonymity should be waived, that the authors and the reviewers should should be – their names and stuff should be known to each other. Um, I agree. I
3: think I, I am a huge proponent of open peer review. Oh, um, I right. think it creates um, better dialogues within the discipline. I think it creates situations where senior scholars and younger scholars actually have to interact Um, and discuss material in ways that they might not necessarily do because of inherent power structures in the academy otherwise. Um, I think that it gives more people a chance to put their stuff out there and to feel like they're going to get a real opinion on it. And and I personally just believe that if you are putting your work out there, one, you put your name on it. And if someone is going to critique your work, they need to put their name on their critique. I think it's just fair.
1: Uh, I was, I was also just going to add to that that, that uh, I like the idea of a crowd peer review as opposed to just a couple of readers. I mean, you can have a couple of specialists read, but you should also open it up to other readers as well um, for a certain period of time.
3: Yeah, uh, and it's interesting because um, uh, for all that it is a problematic service, um, Academia EDU offers that. They offer the ability to put your paper up ahead of time and open it to review and open it to comments. And I have a number of people that I follow on there who I when they open up their papers I you know I read what they write I send stuff back to them and I'm I'm not getting anything out of the process and except for that I'm getting to engage with scholars about work that is interesting to me and then I have something to say about and they're getting a larger set of comments before they send the paper out and everyone is having to be honest about who they are.
1: So when we when we are doing this for Archeogaming you know if, if you write a, an Archeogaming paper and you submit it someplace I'm wondering how they're going about finding reviewers to review that content. You know, I have a, I have an idea that editors are just kind of scratching their heads as far as, well, okay, we have this. It seems interesting, but, you know, who on earth do we go to? And that, that's a real problem. When I, I was at a, a thing at Rutgers yesterday and Sarah Bond, who's at the University of Iowa, had created a spreadsheet, a crowdsourced spreadsheet of – women in ancient history who could serve as peer reviewers for various topics. And I think we would need something like that developed for those who can peer review, you know, media, archaeology, archaeology, game studies and the like. I don't know if that exists yet or, or if, if if it doesn't, you know, who creates it and how.
3: Well, I feel like we started that at some point, didn't we? I don't know. Remember there being like a, a spreadsheet that we had on a Google Groups or somewhere where we were basically putting down what we did, what we were interested in, um, for the public. But I, that's somewhere lost in my first year of PhD brain. Uh, <laughs> so I'd have to look for it.
0: Well, my only concern with what you guys are proposing that I can come up with right at the second, um, is the potential for, uh, bias in the reviewers, which is, I'm uh, guessing why everything is supposed to be double blinded in the first place. um, even though I know that's not a perfect system also. But, I mean, there have been several studies that clearly demonstrate uh, bias, especially gender bias, amongst academics uh, and reviewers. So having it open into the public, I mean, it sounds great, and probably this won't even be a real issue, but there's always the potential for uh, research to be turned down or poo-pooed simply based on the gender of the individual doing it, or even at that point, like the race or ethnicity of the person doing it. So, how
2: would you? But I guess if it's hmm? sorry, no, go ahead. I was, I was say, if it's if it's completely open and you have a community which is supportive of this, then inevitably whoever that reviewer is will be pulled up on that.
0: Yeah, name and shame.
1: <laughs> yes, so it, it's self self policing environment. I think.
0: Do you think yeah, so mean, you think it would actually like improve that situation as opposed to uh, compound it? I think it's, it's going it to be
3: nasty be. at first and it's going to hurt feelings at first, but I think it's better for the dialogue in the process overall. I think it's better for scholarship
2: overall. Okay, I think as well that we're in such a small discipline. I mean, like, if we're specifically talking about like Archeogaming, it's like we're such a small and emergent discipline. Like we all know each other anyway. And when you start to bring in other people into that, it's like, well, like I recently got back review comments on a paper that I submitted and it was clearly reviewed by someone who's very, very knowledgeable, but not in my area. So the comments I got were not like they were relevant, but they were not relevant to that particular paper And so it's really hard to then engage in a dialogue if if I don't know who that person is and I never will because those comments are never made public. And you start to feel like, not necessarily attacked, but just like, oh, I don't really, like I can't actually communicate with you. I can't bring you into this idea if if we don't know who each other are, if we can't talk about it in in a way which is actually open Uh, to kind of remain behind those barriers. They just, yeah, it perpetuates them rather than actually drawing the whole thing together. That's interesting. Okay. Angie, do you have a final thought?
1: No, never a final thought with me. Uh, <laughs> it's, always, it's always thinking in progress, and I hope that I hope they never finish.
0: Okay, well, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, I think we may pick up uh, roughly where we left off, just because I feel like we have a little bit more to chew on here.
1: The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. Let's get back to the show.
0: And we are back, and let's move the conversation forward a little bit, or back a little bit, I guess, to how we want to try to communicate the research that you guys are doing um going forward uh not in paper format but maybe in some other various formats or even how you would even go about communicating this research. Andrew.
1: Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no this is this has been on my mind, you know, cuz you know I'm, I've been working in traditional media for so long that working with new media is something that is necessary and I I'm, I'm not quite sure how to do it yet. I mean, we start with text, then we supplement with with photos you know that are often presented in grayscale. We need to then move to color images. and with with uh, you know the internet and and with other kinds of publishing platforms now we can start embedding movie clips. We can start embedding three um, d images, three d models, and things like that that could be manipulated. I, I think those are all moving in the right direction. I think ultimately, what I want to see, is synthetic text paired with different kinds of media, um, some of which can be engaged with by the reader, and also the underlying data set so that people who read you and people who are looking at the media that you present can go back to the data and see if they can draw the same conclusions or different conclusions. But not only that, um, whatever you publish in whatever format you, you decide to publish in, um that should not be the final word um, and that pretty much any publication going here on out in archaeology or really any discipline should be treated as organic. Um, that is to say it's a starting point for future conversation um, where you can tweak the data, make the data better or analyze the data in a different way. And that's all contributing to the, the story of whatever it is that you're talking about. You know, and this can go all the way into AR and VR and playing a game, um, or a snippet of a game, or or finding some way of, of engaging the reader in the content that you're providing as the author. Now that's that's a tall order. For the authors, um, and that's also a tall order for the publishers because the publisher needs to figure out how to present that content. Typically, it's going to be done in an online way, and not only that, but you also have copyright to worry about because if you're dealing with games, you're, games, you're dealing with um, intellectual property that's not yours, and and how does that work, and how do you get around it? Uh, and so, you know, there there are a lot of hurdles to cross. You know, as we kind of enter this uh, you know this this new world of publishing,
2: Tara. No, I I totally agree. I think that uh, quite quite well. I I agree to a point. I think that there's quite a big deal that gets made out of like, oh, how do we how do we engage with games online? And it's like, well, we're used to producing games in this format, and especially like if you're making games as your argument, or you're making games like where you hold the intellectual property because you have made them. I, I just don't fundamentally see the difference in either the peer review process or the way which we, like, present and engage with these things. I think it's it's a different type of a vocabulary and a different type of a way that we need to learn how to, to read and engage. But we only will, like, we'll only develop that by actually doing it, right? And by actually yeah. kind of, yeah, take, taking that leap of faith. And that's on two sides, right? Like, you need people who are you know, brave enough to produce in this format. And we also need publishers who are brave enough to be like, yeah, we'll take that leap of faith with you. Um, but as as kind of a depressing uh, roundabout to that, as we kind of discussed earlier, there's these huge structures in place which revolve around the monograph. So it's, it's hard to break out of those, even though we know and we already can and have done this in the past.
3: Megan, do you have anything to add? I guess I'm thinking about why it is that we feel this... Um, why does it we feel that the the only way you can get any sort of rigorous academic you know judgment on on an argument is through a written structure? Why do we think that that's the only way that really has enough rigor to count? Um, and for me, I guess I'm sorry, I'm trying like again, I'm ill and I'm trying to formulate this argument in my head as I go, which I think is part of what I'm saying here. For me, I think that there is much more academic rigor in the idea of putting something like a game out there and having people play it than there is in writing a paper about putting the game out there. There's more dimensions to it and, and people have to engage with it more. And I think that the more someone has to engage with your work, the more they're able to be critical about your work and the better feedback you get and the stronger arguments you have to make.
0: Well, here, here's a question though for you. Um, I remember, way back in the day, I remember when YouTube was starting to become a thing. Um, when, when people really were investing time and effort into YouTube and we would make videos, put ourselves out there, you know, I think in the beginning you could only make like a five minute, five to ten minute video, but anyway, you'd make your video, you'd throw it up there, and you used to be able to receive video responses from other people. So on top of being able to just write a comment, which is easy, people would take the time to make their own talking head video and send it back to you as a way of rebutting what you said. So you're basically having like a long distance conversation, a long distance face to face conversation with breaks. And this is my thought. If you're putting your argument out as a video game and I go and I play your game and I I want to I want to rebut your game like the argument that you've made inside your game, I want to rebut it. How is the best way for me to rebut that? Do I then go and make my own video game that is counter to your video game? Should I write about it? I mean, how do you see the give and take happening? Is it happening in the only the one medium or are we encouraging interaction through all forms
2: of media? Well, I think this is the, the beauty of video games. Like we've touched on this a little bit before. Like video games are text, they are visual, they are interactive, they are they, they're audio. You can make arguments and you can rebut and engage with these arguments in so many different ways. Like they are truly like multi and transmedia entities. And it's like we see this already with how people pick up and they do like let's plays of games and they make video like uh, YouTube channels about let's plays about critiques of games about whatever there are people who run podcasts on it there are people who write extended articles and put them onto like kill screen or various other like online gaming review platforms and so it's like absolutely that there are examples as well of games which have been made as rebuttals to games or like ones which are kind of critical commentaries but i don't necessarily think that the the argument has to be or the response has to be as a game. It has to be in whatever media form best suits the argument that you're trying to make, which I guess is the overall kind yeah. of statement of the day, right?
0: <laughs> no, and I, and I like what you guys are saying. I just wanna. So how do we keep track of this then? Let's let's say that Tara gets her 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 uh, her thesis out there as a video game. Um, Andrew goes and plays it, doesn't like the point Tara's making, and he. I don't know, writes, writes a blog article and makes a a podcast about it. And then Megan comes to Tara's defense or something, I don't know, or Megan also doesn't like it, but has different points than Andrew. So, so, you know, in the past, we would have had basically the comment section in a journal where we would all just send our letters of dissent or support about whatever article it was that we read but we live in a multimedia world now and we have the internet and there are so many places that we could go and communicate facebook being just one Mm -hmm. and not even the best so how do we keep track of all of this stuff so that someone Um, can then come along and and follow the whole conversation
1: uh, this probably falls under the rubric of linked open data um, where the game as published or the game thesis as published gets its own stable URI which is maintained at York's repository for example or or is put on some kind of open access platform like opencontext.org and anybody who wishes to reference review comment upon critique uh, that game and game thesis can reference that stable URI and can therefore you know create a link you know from their place to the other place and and uh, you know with open context you can maintain you know those links going back you know, to uh, things that are, that are mentioning the source material. Um, so maybe that's the best way to think about it is to publish in an open way and to have that game thesis out there in the open also with the unique key that is just tied to that game and anything that references the game will use that key um, so that you can find pretty much anything.
0: So then that also falls back on the concept of open access um, and I'm not sure where the three of you fall in that argument. Um, But it seems to me that you would almost have to have complete open access to an argument that to a a
2: thesis like that. Not necessarily. I mean, like I completely 150% think that all academia should be open access for a number of different reasons. But having like a stable URI or a DOI does not necessarily mean that it has to be open access. Like there's technologies that are coming in such as like blockchain, which is like a consistent repository of like all The things which relate to a specific thing so i can imagine a world where you have like blockchain accounts which kind of link together uh all the steps which which a article has gone through or like a game has gone through and all the things which are related to that as well um but i do i yeah to to take that 360 again like i do absolutely 100 percent think that this should all be open access and available knowledge should not have a price on it uh
0: andrew do you have an opinion
1: yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. With, I agree with with uh, with Tara. I, I, I certainly think that that any intellectual property that that is produced in the name of, of advancing science <laughs> or whatever humanity should be out there is open access um, and that we need to find a new business model for that stuff. If we want to have a business model model at all, um, I yeah. open but if it's not open, it's closed, you know. That's that's just me talking, but Tara does raise the great point that you can assign a URI, it can be a pointer, and and that content might be behind a paywall, God forbid, but if it is, you're still pointing at that thing, uh, and you're still having all of this data kind of collected around that unique identifier, whether it's open or shut, but for me, it's open all the way, otherwise I'm not interested.
3: Megan? I believe firmly that it should be accessible to everyone, but I also think that creators have rights, and... If I make something, it is mine and I made it and I can choose how to share it with you and how much of it I want to put out there. And that's your choice as a consumer or as um, someone who takes up the media that I produce as to whether you want to accept it or not based on the limitations I put on it.
0: Well, so that opens an interesting set of questions then because... It seems to me, and this is as an outside observer, that the concept of written academia is different than the concept of a game, any game, in that a game is seen as a creative entity or, yeah, a creative thing, um, almost like a piece of art. And you're right, as the creator of said piece of art, I have the right to restrict access to it as much as i can but i also know as someone who has published creative writing and who has friends who put physical art out into the world once it's out there you lose the ability to control that and it is now open to the interpretation of anyone who interacts with it and so i agree so so that being so much different from an academic paper which has the luxury of me definitively writing out exactly what i want you to t- to take away
2: from this paper how do we reconcile that but well, this is the beauty again of, of of using something like blockchain it's like obviously you you can't prevent people from like blatantly ripping your stuff through a number of different methods. Right. But the thing about blockchain is that all that information, so you can say like you can use this piece in these different ways, or it's going to cost you this amount if you want to remix and do whatever with it. Like you retain complete creative control, and that's always associated with that block. It's always associated with that thing that it's it's relating to. So it's kind of like this is the technology that things like Bitcoin and increasingly bank transfers are built around that it's like no one person has that entire chain. It's spread across every node in the network. So you can control how you engage and understand and see the spread of this information. It's a completely new way to engage with this, this kind of concept of sharing and uh, the, the assigning of, of creative commons or the assigning of copyright, the assigning of all these different things. It's, it's in the network rather than abstract to it. Um, so I think there's a lot of emerging technologies, like blockchain just being one of them, that will have a really big impact and should have a big impact and could have a really good impact on how we do academia and how we understand this uh, tension between the creation of artistical kind of intellectual property as well as the yeah. sharing of it.
3: Go ahead, I think I think where I'm coming from on this is that at this point, the way that things are like, – I've already seen things that I've done co-opted and used by other people who did not give me any credit because I was using new forms for things. And because maybe it wasn't clear enough that these things, you still need to give citation back to the person who you took the idea from. And I think that until we have some of these structures, it can be very frustrating um, to put your work out there and to see it misused in a way that you didn't
0: intend and to not get any credit for that. Can um, you be, how specific can you be on that? Because I remember you mentioning that on uh, yeah. on Facebook I, a while I'll, back as a frustrated post. Um, yeah, I will be
3: general about one instance, which is one instance where I presented something at a conference and I know that the person who used my work was at the conference and saw it. Um, And I spoke to them at the conference. And then later they wrote an article for a very major news outlet that co-opted my ideas and didn't mention that I had come up with them and didn't mention that they had talked to me. And when I spoke to them about it, they, um, they simply didn't think that they had to give any sort of credit for it because it wasn't something that was published yet. It wasn't something that was um, formalized in a way that they could give an easy citation. Um, and so I I love the idea of open access. I love the idea of information being free, but until we have structures to reward us and to create the system of, of academia going forward that, um,
0: that ensures that we get the kind of credit we need, um, then I, I have concerns. And you're not necessarily looking for like a monetary return. You're just looking for Oh absolutely for not. No, I'm not looking for a monetary
3: return at all. God knows I did not get into any of this for <laughs> money. <laughs> There's no money in any of this. Um no, it's just that right now this the the academic track, the academic path requires that you get a certain amount of academic and public credit for your work and that you do a certain number of things that you can put your name on. And until we have a new structure that either doesn't require that in order to advance or that replaces the the new and fluid dynamic we have with something that gives credit so that you can get
2: credit to advance, then I, I just have I have concerns. Yeah, I, I completely agree with with Megan. And it's it's part of this like wider kind of awful systemic issue with academia where it's like your worth as an academic is based upon the publications that you make and those are considered as being your ideas and obviously yes. there is just so much more outside of that that goes into it and i've had it on so many occasions that my supervisor has said like you have great ideas but be careful who you tell them to because of exactly the issue that megan has had and that to me is, is like that's not, it kills me because i want to hear i want to people to build these ideas and it's collaborative and wonderful but not everyone shares this a lot of people are quite selfish and and if not like meaning like not wanting to be selfish people but because of the system that they're involved in you have to be to to get your you know academic credit and progress through the levels so it takes a wide a huge shift at, at like a system-based level on the way that we conceptualize and do academia um to change that and and that um, requires everyone to buy into it yeah
1: Uh, just to to add a a, a coda to this um i I do agree that it is the producer of the contents choice you know as to how open to make that particular bit of content you know so so if i create something i can choose you know to let it out in the world or i can choose to keep it under my hat until publication Um, anything that i that i tweet for example um, I, i i treat as public you know so if i tweet an idea I hope somebody steals it. You know, if it's good enough to steal, that I'm doing a good job. Um, I try not to to bring ego into this, just because I want to see the science move forward. And if if I'm able to put something out that somebody else can use in a productive way to move the science ahead, good. You know, that's fine. I, I don't need to be quoted or cited or whatever. Um, it, it's just professional courtesy. And you know, if I cite something or if somebody wants to cite me, great. Um, but that's just my own personal stuff, and and the folks should understand that I'm coming from outside of academia. So, you know, even though I'm returning from my PhD, it's it's not as as big a deal for me. You know, having been outside academia for 20 years, and what I decide to do with my ideas, you know, it doesn't really have a professional bearing on on what I'm doing. You know, on my day to day. So it's it's a different experience for me. But I certainly respect and understand. You know, where where Megan and Tara and others are coming from.
0: Well, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, we will continue our conversation.
1: This is Christopher Sims, host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. It's a show geared for early career archaeologists where I bring interviews and casual panel discussions about the challenges and opportunities that many archaeologists encounter starting off. So, if you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, you'll find what you need to go dig a hole. Tune in every other week on the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: And we are back. And let's, let's talk a little bit about how you see people who are non-academics engaging with what you're going to end up producing in the end. I mean, however you choose to present it, how are non-academics going to interact with it? And how does that uh, reflect on you as an academic or reflect on your work? Tara?
2: Right, so one one of the parts of uh, my master's research was to go into game studios and and to talk to them about how they were accessing uh, archaeological information, and and kind of one of the the arguments that had previously existed within academia was it was like oh if we make it like open access people like people will just come and consume and take all this wonderful academic knowledge, but the problem that they were finding was that they're producing a game and the information which is contained within a monograph is structured in a particular way, which doesn't necessarily make sense or is comprehensible to their practice. Um, And so that kind of first alerted me to this idea that like uh, often audiences have ways which they find consuming information more valuable or actually make sense to what they're trying to get out of it. Um, And so for us to only produce information in this one particular way, it was never going to feed back into them. And likewise, when they produce documentation or, um ideas or kind of publications they do it in a way which is often quite different to our publication methods and our idea of like what makes for a good academic argument um despite the fact that they often had very good arguments the medium and the they're producing them wasn't in line with us Uh, so i don't know if andrew wanted to speak a bit more about how we could maybe align those or like um what sort of steps are being taken yeah
1: There. um I mean speaking from from my personal experience, um, I've been trying to do this cocktail of communication for what Archeo gaming is and I that may be a reason why we're why we're here. Um, I don't know. Um you know, starting with with publishing peer reviewed articles and academic publications, um, blogging about stuff that I'm thinking about, uh, so that anybody who's interested can come in, comment on the ideas, take those ideas away, um, yell at me—I don't care. <laughs> um, but but it's 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 done it's done in a very public venue. You know, I want to be as forward facing as I possibly can because whatever happens, you know, with with the blog, um, you know, helps me contribute, I think, better to what archaeogaming actually is. And then, you know, writing for an academic audience and then writing other things for a more general audience. You know, the archaeogaming book is going to be more of a popular book, um, I hope anyway. It's written in that style so that people can come to it if they know games or they can come to it if they know a little bit about archaeology and then kind of meet in the middle and talk to each other. And that's what each chapter is trying to do. And uh, then it's just uh, talking on the podcast, or if, if a reporter has a question, talking to that reporter, and and getting the word out, you know, in, in a public environment also. And you know, with with uh, with Tara and with Megan and with Sean and with with others, you know, who are working with archaeology and video games, um, I, I think if we all kind of do the same thing, we talk to as many people as possible, we create this environment where people will say, "Oh, I've heard of that. That's really interesting," and and that can start a discussion or a dialogue. Um, both on a professional level and an academic level, and also in a very public way. I think what we're doing is public archaeology, um, as well as it is, you know, a more uh, in a more academic bent too. I don't know. I, we just have to make use of all of the communication engines as we possibly can to reach as wide an audience as we can to bring in all of these disparate voices. And as Megan said earlier, this is an interdisciplinary study, and and we need to have all of the part of what we're doing.
0: Megan, did you have anything, done?
3: Yeah. Um, it kind with with my work and what I'm doing with my PhD right now, despite what I said about my concerns with open access and creators' rights, um, I'm still doing the whole process in a radically transparent way in that I talk about my successes and my failures and the entire process and how it works and what I choose to pursue and what I choose to put behind. and um, And I think that's important. And I think it's important as a new discipline, that we talk to academics the way that we have been, that we talk to the public the way that we have been, and that we are open and honest about what works and what doesn't work. Um, because if we want to draw more people into this, both uh, to consume our outputs and to engage with our outputs, and to hopefully encourage them to create their own outputs, then we have to show them that there's a lot of different ways to do the process, and and that there are a lot of different opportunities for how this can work or not work because some days it just doesn't work and that's okay
1: right
2: yeah i think megan's touched on a a really um, important point which is sharing of failure because again like this return to the academic structure and system it's like it privileges success and it privileges like doing something, not necessarily well, but like getting a positive result rather than a negative one. But often it's in those negative results in the failures or in not necessarily in the failures themselves, but in the reason why it failed that you actually in like broaden your knowledge significantly. And so I think that that what we're talking about is if we can share openly both our successes and our failures, you get a much wider and more comprehensive understanding rather than one or the other or none. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I was always taught that a null result was still a result and oh, yeah. I was very surprised recently when I was um I was in a, a formal situation and I was explaining my structure and my case studies and everything I was gonna do and someone said, Well what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't happen? And I'm like, Well, then we learn something and They're like, But you won't get a PhD I said, Well, I don't think that's the case. I think I would then write about how it didn't work, but it wouldn't mean that we didn't learn something. And that for me is the most important thing. So, okay. So it
0: is a scary to... moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, so can you talk about it a little bit more? I mean, just kind of share. Can, I mean, can you share? I, I don't know. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I was, I was, uh, I was having a, a meeting with some official people who were involved in looking at my work and, I have 10 case studies for my dissertation, which has been a constant source of, oh, my God, scariness for everyone, (laughs) um, because that means 10 things that I have to to do as small research projects that I then have to get public input on and write up and analyze. And it's a lot. Um, And I have a tendency to overwrite, which is also a problem. So um, when I was saying, you know, this is what my methodology is, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do all these case studies and then I'm going to analyze the data. And then at the end, I'm going to create a game that shows the best practices and principles that I took out of this entire experience. Um, What if the case studies don't give you what you need? Well, the case studies will give me something. Well, what if they don't give you what you need to create the game? Well, they'll give me something and that's what I'll use to create the game. Well, what if the game doesn't work? Well, then I've learned something about that and that's, that's an output that I can explain to people. And and I just kept trying to explain that I didn't consider the failure of any step to be a failure of the knowledge process. Um, because that's just how I have always looked at scholarship. And when I was in more of a the public-private sector doing archaeology, you know, sometimes you dig shovel tests. Most of the time you dig shovel tests and there's nothing there.
0: Right. And
3: that doesn't mean nothing that's still very important. Um, so to, to find out that there may be this giant prevailing view that if your research doesn't give you the answer that's all polished and sparkly and wonderful that that means you failed, That was that was hard to understand for me.
0: Do you guys think maybe that's prevalent in a developing field like the one you are all working in? or or trying to work in um, because it's so new and so unknown that people outside of the field want to see positive results before they'll see negative results? Do you think so? Oh, okay. Did did anybody
2: want to talk towards that? Yeah, sure. I think that as well, a large part of it comes down to, I mean, like, and this is going to sound a little bit off, but it's, it's also that people just don't understand what it is that we're doing. So it's easier for them to understand a positive result. So it's like, if you can show them, a result and you're like, this is what it should be. They're like, ah, okay, I get it. I can see that thing. Whereas if you show them a negative result or you say like, it's the process that's important, not the outcome. They don't have the the knowledge of what that process is because they haven't necessarily engaged with it. And it's not that they they can't or they shouldn't. It's just that there's only a finite number of hours in the day and we're specialists in this topic now having studied it. So, you know, how, how do we then show that process? How do we then show like what Megan is saying with with hers and it's also very relevant to mine? How do do you show what that process is and what the value is, even if the result itself is either non-valuable or negative or in some other way kind of um, different outside of the expectation?
0: Andrew, did you have anything to add?
1: Uh, No, I I think Tara's spot on.
0: So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning where, you know, we've got this new form of archaeology using new forms of media that are unfamiliar to academia as a whole and it like Tara was saying because we're so unfamiliar with it i mean i'm not even an academic and i'm unfamiliar with a lot of what you guys are trying to do um so i'm interested to see how you will communicate it and i don't see anything that could happen as i fail. i mean even if you if you if you quote unquote fail to prove whatever your thesis is trying to prove I still don't see that as a failure, but I'm also coming at it from field training like Megan, where it's like most of the time we're finding empty holes. So like I'm used to that, you know, Um, but I can see why academia would be a little hesitant to absorb something like that, especially coming from a high pressure situation where you don't see uh, the false, not the yeah, the false positives and the 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 negative results of research very often that stuff doesn't tend to get published, but I think you do see it in
3: some fields within academia. I mean, when you get into some of the the biological and the chemical sciences, often you do see where people tried something and it doesn't turn out to be what they thought it was going to be or it doesn't work, and that's still publishable. That's still re- that's still something you report. Um, if if you think that. A particular I'm, I'm just thinking like because i've been hanging around with some biologists lately um <laughs> if, if you think that
1: as you do yeah. as you
3: do you know um <laughs> that you're doing you know medical testing to see if something a particular chemical compound is going to work for production of a drug um finding out that it doesn't work is a good result that's still important so why does that not translate necessarily into what we're doing Where finding out that something we treat as a practice or something we treat as uh, methodological or something we treat as you know a a theoretical framework that we think important doesn't actually apply or doesn't actually work i think it it is valid to report on the fact that these things didn't turn out the way that we expected them to because um yeah so coming back around yes i think some of it is because we are new uh and there is an expectation that we need to succeed
0: well, and, and then there's an interesting question for uh, Ryan, because you said you've been in the publication, the academic publication uh, field for a while. How often do you see publications go through that are reporting on uh, a, a failed hypothesis or a failed idea? How often do those get published?
1: Um, well, from my in
0: archaeology,
1: I guess I should say. Yeah, I mean, from from my experiences as, as a publisher at the American School and at the American Numismatic Society, uh, I haven't really seen any anybody publish a, a failed idea. I've certainly read stuff, yeah, you know, that we did not publish um, that weren't you know from other just you know just things you know in the academic literature where where you have that that failure coming up. But but as as far as as anything coming into you know the two places that I've worked, um, I haven't seen it. I'd love to see it. You know, because that does add to the dialogue. It does help grow the discipline, whatever that discipline might be. You know, we learn as much from failure as we do for success, like Megan was saying. So, so um, yeah, uh, I haven't seen it yet. That doesn't mean I won't. Um, I'd like to.
2: Sorry, I was, was going to say, like, to kind of build on that a little bit more. Um, I have a lot of very good friends in Denmark who are doctors. And, and part of it is that there's legislation which came through, which basically said that if you don't publish negative results, you're basically – taking people's lives because someone else is going to repeat those experiments and repeat those experiments and get the same failures and still not publish. Archaeology sits on this kind of interesting ley line of being both a science and an art and a humanity. And so there's not this pressure. It's like if if you publish a null result, it's like, oh, well, like, you know, no one actively is penalized through death or through prolonged sickness for this. So it's like like we can genuinely see like there's a benefit in publishing these negative results because you don't repeat and repeat and repeat those mistakes. But there's not that same like legislative or immediate pressure put on us to do so. So there isn't yeah. that kind of culture that's emerging um, that says do this. And I'm aware that Sean Graham has actually been, been publishing um, quite prolifically a lot of his mistakes that he's made. And it's been fascinating to see oh, yeah. because a lot of people have been like, why would you publish failures? Because that's admitting that you're wrong. And his response is, is very much along the lines of like, well, in admitting that I'm wrong, we can all get better, right? So that's actually a good thing. <laughs> but it's it's changing that mindset of being like, oh, null no results don't matter because there's no immediate impact being actually there is, and we can learn from it.
0: So since we're kind of on the topic then, um, do you think that archaeology as a field is a bit phobic of the concept of, quote-unquote, being wrong? Like, we don't see failure and being wrong. We see being wrong as a bad thing, not necessarily a learning experience. And we don't want to be seen as, as researchers, we don't want to be seen as st- stupid. So we don't publish our mistakes out of basically ego and vanity. Do you think that's a problem in the field of archeology span that you think is going to affect the archaeogaming field going forward? And if you do, how do you, I mean, other than like Sean, uh, Sean Graham is doing by publishing, physically publishing your mistakes, how do we, how do we, as a field, correct this problem without legislation? Hopefully,
2: well, I guess exactly what Sean's doing. It's like you just have to. I mean, like for me, it's it's the latter part as well because I don't. I I'm not a person who likes admitting that I'm wrong or likes making failures. I like I like being right. But it's like you eventually have to come to the conclusion that it's like you will have failures and those failures are an important part of this journey. So it's important to share those. So it comes from the individuals as, as well as from the community at large. If we can create a community of practice, which supports and engages and discusses these mistakes or dead ends or failures in a way, which is not, doesn't frame them as failures, frames them as being part of that journey. Then I think that's the important step to actually like true innovation and truly doing something different and exciting.
3: And I think that I I am biased in this, and that should be put out there that I'm biased in this argument because my research is about creating ethics and best practices. That I think that you uh, inherent in my argument is you can't have best practices without talking about mistakes because best practices don't happen without practice. They don't happen right. without trying.
0: So you're a big advocate for publishing your failures, yeah, and admitting absolutely.
3: Them. Yeah, I am. I own my failures. Um, it's. It's just, I think, something that has to happen. I don't like it. I don't like people knowing when I'm wrong. I don't like people looking at me and shaking their finger and going, you screwed up. Nobody likes that. Right. Uh, but if my stated research goal is to find ways to make what we're doing better as a discipline and to make us uh, more ethical and more honest and better practitioners, then I think that I have to take those hits and yeah. show where things don't work. This
1: this also, you know, we're talking about personal ownership of, of failure and publication of failure. This also needs to escalate to the institutional level as well, where you work in an environment that is okay with failure as it is with success. Right. Um, and you'll find this with granting agencies too. Uh, so for example, the National Endowment of the Humanities Office for Digital Humanities, um, I, I've sat on, on, on panels reviewing projects before, and, you know, we're told that we are encouraged to take risks or to seriously consider what might be perceived to be a risky project, something that is teetering on the edge of failure, but might be at the edge of brilliance. Um, and if it fails, okay, you gave some money and it failed and we learn from that. Um, so, So it's good that we all take personal ownership and and, and, and pride in the work, Uh, but at the same time, we need to make sure that institutions that are employing us or have us as students or are giving us money um, are also okay with the chance and the likelihood that there will be some kind of failure.
0: Well, guys, this has been a uh, great conversation. I I love getting the three of you together. Do you have any final thoughts on anything that we've been talking about uh, this episode? Even though Andrew doesn't like final thoughts.
1: <laughs> nothing, is, nothing, <laughs> nothing is final.
0: Uh, Megan? Yeah, I,
3: I, in that I agree with him. I don't think that there's a final thought on this. I think that this is a process that's ongoing, because if you're not continuing to think about this stuff and be reflexive be about it, then you're not working your brain.
2: Tara? Agreed.
0: <laughs> all right, then. Well, thank you all We're for being <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for being on the show. And I look forward to talking to you all next month
1: okay sounds good
0: bye bye all right bye if you like what you've heard subscribe and share us with your social network 8-bit test pit is available on itunes stitcher and google play or online at the archaeology podcast network site be sure to comment and give us a like wherever you listen and consider donating to the show and the network on our website Archaeology Podcast Network.com. Eight Bit Test Pit is produced by Sarah Head and Tristan Boyle. Music is provided by Tristan Boyle. Thanks for listening.
1: This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.